Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot Podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. Today, I'm talking to John Rossman. And John must have been asked this question a number of times. What would Jeff do? John was at Amazon in the early days. And in fact, he's the guy that launched the marketplace, which today accounts for more than 50% of Amazon's revenue. We find out why he left. We also find out what tips, tricks, tools, habits that he either developed or taught to him whilst he was at Amazon, that he's then fine-tuned and honed with his own clients, SME and Corps across the US over the last 12 years. And people have said to him, John, look, there's so much knowledge in your head. There's so many things that you've got. It's like a system. It's like sort of the Amazon playbook. Can you just create a book? So that's what, that's what he's done. Some of the things we talk about are this famous Amazon habit of spending 15 minutes at the beginning of every meeting to read the documentation before discussing it. And another one, which is how do you write the future? How do you create, what is it that you create? What, what are the artifacts that you put together and what's the, in what form so that you can try and break out the status quo? I had a really great conversation with John this morning and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Dom, thanks for having me. I'm John Rossman. I uh, live now in Southern California down in a little town called San Clemente, which is along the coast of Orange County. I uh, work with um, companies and leaders who uh, really want to figure out a way to innovate and operate better within their space, but they're looking for some new tools, techniques, strategies, leadership principles to do that. a long time ago, I was at Amazon. I was an early person at Amazon. I was there from early 2002 through late 2005. I got to launch the marketplace business. So that's 58% of all units shipped and sold are now on that marketplace business. And I also ran the enterprise services business where we ran other large retailers, e-commerce infrastructure, which included Marks & Spencer uh, back in the day, Target.com, Toys R Us, and a bunch of other great brands. And when I left Amazon in late 2005, started working with my clients on digital strategy, making change happen. I started to see the impact of all the little strategies and tools and principles that we used at Amazon to make change happen. And I had a client of mine actually at the Gates Foundation, at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in Seattle, uh, about six, seven years after I left Amazon, who came to me and said, John, you know, you really ought to write a book about all these little tricks. And so that kind of got me into the the book writing business. I, I'm an engineer by background. I'd never... Uh, even thought about writing a book. And so it's been a really fun journey for me of capturing all these little ideas. So the book I recently released is called Think Like Amazon, 50 and a Half Ideas to Become a Digital Leader. And it really is kind of all the little tricks 
and trades and mechanisms and tools from that are authentically Amazon that I've used with my clients over the years to help define, operate better, be a better leader, uh, and, to, and to work more in the future, to innovate in the future. John, that's fantastic. Um, when, you, uh, when you think about the clients that you worked with, are there some things that didn't work? I mean, are there, so these are, these are all the tools that people should use. Do you, do you have a sort of a shadow list of the top 50 things that, that cause failure? Well, you know, at the top of the list, um, and it's not a thing, but it's a, a symptom, is working with really successful companies, healthy companies that say they want to innovate, they want to bet big, they want to, you know, change, but they really don't commit to it. Like, those are the toughest ones for me. So I was a, I was a partner at a firm called Alvarez and Marcel for 12 years after I left Amazon. A&M's famous for restructuring clients, right? Clients that are in crisis. Those were always my favorite clients because they were they were willing to do anything. They, they didn't let the past define their future and they didn't hold on to, to past traditions, right? Um, and so the hardest clients are always those that say they want to innovate, say they want to change, but they don't really want to go through the hard and messy work in order to do it. And so I think that's kind of the, the symptom that I look for. And, and the other thing is, and, and this is really relatively recent, I'd say over the past four or five years is, you know, we all think about digital transformation and this is something that goes on in the organization. It's really about personal change and what are leaders willing to do differently? What new new tools, what new strategies, what new time allocations, what are they willing to get their hands messy with? What are they willing to do differently? Because it's really their habits that the rest of the organization pick up on. And so um, as I've gotten more and more into advising companies versus doing consulting work, I really like, is this leader willing to really change their habits in order to get some different results? Like that to me is the, the, the thing I'm trying to zero in on um, that because if they aren't, if they kind of like, well, I want everybody else to do the hard work. I don't really want to change. Right. Well, that's, that is a really bad, or that's a strong predictor that we aren't really going to change how we operate. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, there's no shortage of diet books or gyms and yet the world isn't full of thin fit people completely yet. And it- well, it's, it's funny you mentioned gyms, right? So, so one of the things about Amazon, you know, everybody knows them as an innovator and they get way too much press about that, but they are a world-class operating company, right? Like just think about from the logistics and fulfillment standpoint, technology standpoint, things work. You can trust your deliveries. You can trust, you know, your transactions and everything, right? They are such an operationally rich and operationally excellent oriented company. I think that's part of the digital playbook that doesn't get uh, kind of enough press. And, And so a lot of the tricks that I talk about are how to put operational excellence into your organization. And that really has at a highest level two benefits. First of all, that's the everyday work. That's going to the gym every single day, doing the sweaty work that helps you improve it for today's customers and for today's business. But that hard work also gives you the inspiration 
for how to innovate in your business going forward, right? And so I can't really find a way to separate the two. I, I think all of us think about, you know, innovation is like this lightning bolt that comes down and strikes us. Well, that insight comes from going to the gym every day and working hard to make things operationally excellent. And then what you'll find is you reach certain edges of where that operational excellence can go. And the only way that you can proceed is by creating something new. And so that's how operational excellence feeds into innovation. And so how did that, if you go back to the, the you said earlier, you launched the marketplace. So what was the, what was the, what was the edge that, that meant that the marketplace became a thing where did where did the innovation from that come well i think a couple of things that that we did really well um first of all if you so this is early 2002 the the big marketplace company at that point is of course ebay right and and amazon this was actually amazon's third attempt at a marketplace business they had done something called auctions they had done something called z shops none of those uh, worked very well so i was coming in to launch a a new version of the marketplace the first thing we did was a really a strategic vision which which was we wanted a customer to be able to trust buying from amazon or buying from the marketplace, buying from a marketplace seller as much as trusting from buying from Amazon, the retailer. And that's a fairly simple sentence, but when you actually break it down, it meant that we had to put a very complex choreography set of transactions and data feeds and requirements on our sellers in order that we had the same operational control and understanding with our sellers as we did with Amazon, the retailer completely different model than what eBay did, right? eBay yeah. basically just said, hey, it's between you and the seller, you know, and everything. Right? All we do is a listing. So we did a lot of things like that to create customer trust that put really hard work on Amazon as well as on our sellers. So I think that was something that we got right. But then the forcing function was we could, we had to make it so that it was largely self-service for sellers because we knew that we were going to be highly constrained in the amount of headcount that we were going to be able to add to support. And we wanted to have hundreds of thousands of third-party sellers on our website. We didn't realize it would get to millions as it is today, <laughs> right? And so that those constraints then forced us to to all types of sometimes big things, sometimes little things in order to both have a great um, seller experience, but also be able to scale it. So we basically had to make it self-service in every single way. And that meant everything from, you know, the documentation to examples, to the test and release environment, to the types of metrics and controls that we put in place to ensure that sellers were doing the right thing on behalf of our customers. Yeah, which is, it's a huge risk launching the marketplace because you've got, you know, hundreds of thousands is your aim and they could destroy very quickly the customer experience that, that the business had spent a lot of time and effort building up. That's, that's exactly right. And so, you know, that customer trust was really the asset that we wanted to build upon and leverage and not potentially put at risk. Yeah. And so what are the sort of dark, the dark secrets that are hidden in the mists of time? What didn't go as well as hoped? Well, I think, in fact, just this weekend, there's some pretty pointed analysis about how the Amazon marketplace business 
they've lost control of some of the product quality, um, especially from from international sellers at Amazon. And mm-hmm. so I don't know all the facts around that, but I've, I've seen a lot of symptoms where sheer size um, has gotten away from a lot of platform companies, right? And where governance needs to be uh, fully thought through. And so, so in my assessment today, Amazon has some opportunity to continue to improve the customer trust and realizing that, you know, not having every seller in the world may not be a bad thing and that they need to really go back to that orientation of the absolute number one job is customer trust in the item that you're buying, that it's safe, that it's authentic, that it's everything that it's supposed to be. Yeah, there's there's a lot of, uh, certainly I use third-party plugins to make sure that the reviews are authentic and genuine. And so there's, there's definitely some things that the platform could do to make that work slicker. Right, yeah. And so there you are, you launched the marketplace and why did you leave? What was the, what, what, what triggered, what triggered your exit? Wow. You want to set me back on my therapy here. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. So I left in late 2005 and first of all, I had a great opportunity. I had been a partner at Arthur Anderson before Amazon and, and, um, Alvarez and Marcel was starting the consulting practice and I, and I got the opportunity to be an early leader in the consulting practice and work with some people that I knew and, and trusted. But I think the other thing that people you know, forget is basically all everybody remembers is the past, you know, call it nine, 10 years where Amazon stock has basically just gone up and up and up and up and up, right? Well, there was about a nine-year period where the stock was essentially flat. And I was there during a middle four years of that nine-year period. And as a senior person at Amazon, and their, their compensation structure is very public, they pay, especially at a senior level, a well below market uh, salary and and all of the upside is in stock appreciation right and and even back then it was pure stock options it wasn't even restricted stock units and so if the stock didn't go up you got nothing and so at a certain point you know both you become, begin to question you know when is it when is it going to pay back as well as you know your wife your spouse starts questioning like when is this going to <laughs> to pay back and and you eventually kind of lose the faith right nobody saw this coming uh, from Amazon, but I have never looked back in in regretted either going to Amazon or 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 leaving Amazon. And I came away with there with so much so rich of of an experience and tools that make me so much better. I have a I have a business partner that I've worked with. I worked with Steve uh, at Arthur Anderson before going to Amazon, and I worked with Steve for several years at Alvarez and Marcel afterwards. And he said, Amazon completely changed you, John. And one of the ways that it changed you was, especially when you're working as an advisor, as a consultant, you're always working to simplify and clarify what all of the parties are doing, right? And, And that habit is one from Amazon where simple concise communication about specifics, important specifics. It's easy to write convoluted long things. It's easy to write simple but but overly simple wrong things, but it's really hard to write simple and clear 
concise communication. And I, I actually think that that's one of Amazon's real secrets. And in fact, it's outlined in several of the of the ideas here. Amazon, they don't allow PowerPoint in the organization. All projects, all proposals, all ideas get written out first as a narrative, a six-page narrative that, that helps a team get precise and clear and simple on what is the idea that we're proposing. And then you, you circulate that to others to read and, and all the way up to the S team, to the senior team. Meetings start with 15 minutes of silence where these documents, these narratives are read and then conversation ensues. And there's so much goodness that comes out of that forcing function of writing out ideas completely. And it's one of the, the habits that I really try to work with with uh, teams on is the richness and how important it is to write out ideas. And you will think th through things so much better. You'll be able to pass them on to others so much easier and better and more concisely. It'll help you scale and it will help your important change initiatives go so much better. And I've often wondered about that 15 minutes of silence at the beginning. Are people then reading it for the first time or are people re-reading re, re it typically? It, it depends on the person, right? If you've been involved in either the development of the narrative or in a prior review, then you're rereading it. But oftentimes it's a person's first time reading through that narrative. And, it, and, it, and at first it comes across as really awkward to have the room be silent, right? And, and the right way to do it is phones are away, computers are away, people are not distracted, and you print out the documents and you actually read them and people are taking notes. And that is just a championship habit of taking the time, investing the time in, you know, what Amazon calls working in the future, right? So many, you know, one of the great disconnects that that I see out there is if you if I do lots of keynote speaking and I'll ask the audience like who here believes that innovating changing your business model changing how you go about your business is vital for your five to ten year survival uh, 90% of everybody will raise their hand and then you ask the question who here has a deliberate process for how you go about innovating Rarely does anybody raise their hand, right? And so that disconnect of, we, as leaders, we all know that we need to innovate. We need to change how we go about things. We need to we need to make bets and investments differently. We need to work collaboratively different within the organization. But we actually don't put a deliberate process in place, which means if it does happen, it's completely accidental, right? And so the great thing about Amazon, the lesson to take from Amazon is their innovation is a system. It's a playbook, right? And and that's largely the playbook that I capture here. It, it you know that every single year, new capabilities, some big, some small, are going to come from Amazon. But there is a system for how do you go about it. And if you want to be a consistent, innovative company and team. You have to dedicate the time and be deliberate in how you go about it. It can't happen by accident. So what are some of these? You share with us some of the 50 or even share the half one. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll end up with the half one, but um, I've shared a couple of them. Yeah. I think the first is around operational excellence, right? And, and you know, the idea of putting metrics into everything you do and then 
creating metrics meetings where people come together to review the metrics and and you're really focused on failure, right? Where didn't we hit our service level agreement? Where did we have a quality issue? Where was there a customer experience problem? And in a rhythmic way, in a habitual way, get together and measure the business for operational excellence. I think I think that is a big understated component of how Amazon works. And that's one of those things where good is the enemy of great, isn't it? Because most companies, most companies get together and pat themselves on the back because their metrics are, they're okay, or they say, we're better than everybody else or nearly as good as everybody else. And they just let themselves off rather than beating themselves up and saying, how do we be, what's the best in the world and how do we get to be the best in the world at this? You're absolutely right. And, and you get there by measuring every single transaction and by having a really granular understanding of what are the steps of that customer experience and then putting a high service level agreement and continuing to raise. And that service level agreement basically says, we want the worst customer experience to hit this bar, right? Instead of measuring the mean or the average customer experience, you measure what what is the worst customer experience going on out there? And if you can focus on where the bad customer experiences are, then you know everybody else is getting a better customer experience. And I think one of the second tricks of Amazon is they truly measure the customer experience. Most companies tend to lead with metrics that are about operations and finance, and they don't truly push to understand the real customer experience and how do we measure it, right? They, 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 they take the customer experience and they measure that with surveys or what people are talking about in the call center. And while those can be important indicators, they don't give you the hardened data to really be able to understand everything that you want to on a on a near on a very quick basis around that customer experience so so metrics and metrics meetings are are a couple of the ideas in the book i have a section of ideas that are about how a business person can be a better partner with technology people right uh-huh. and so those those ideas are really about ask these types of questions when you're working with your technical people, right? And it's really about, you know, how do we design for availability? How do we design for extensibility? How do we design for security? How do we design for the future requirements, right? And so if you can be a better business partner to your technology team, guess what? Everybody's going to benefit from that. And then I have a set of ideas that are really about business models and how to work in the future. So I think one of the business models that Amazon has really perfected is this concept of being a platform company. And for Amazon, being a platform company means building capabilities that either Amazon can use or they can turn externally and have other people benefit from them. And really, this is where so many of Amazon's new businesses have come from. AWS, Amazon Web Services, comes from that. FBA, Fulfillment by Amazon, comes from that notion. So many of their businesses are where they build tools for themselves, but then they they take it externally. And the point I make in the book is asking yourself, what are our true core capabilities? What do we need to be world-class at? What do we need to be famous for? And how would I make those capabilities good enough that they could be self-service, that I could have external 
customers use those capabilities that they could be cost competitive, feature competitive, availability competitive in the marketplace. Even if you don't go down that path, asking those questions will make you a better operator, right? And will give you ideas for innovation. And so thinking about how to be a platform company can be a really important set of strategies uh, to invoke, even if you don't do that on a broad scale basis. And then this whole notion of, you know, how to be a systematic innovator, how to work in the future more. And, and I have a set of ideas about, you know, outlining how to write the narratives, how to write what's called a future press release, how to write, FAQs, frequently asked questions, and how to write user manuals before you build anything, and and how important those disciplines are, and those are activities that I always say those are those are go slow to go fast uh, uh-huh. types of activities, right? You take a lot more time upfront before you decide to do something, but then you get really good at what we're going to say yes to, what we're going to say no to. And for those things that we're going to say yes to, we can become much better at proceeding on them in a very incremental and small way. We can think big, but we can bet small. And that being able to bet small, like that's everything that agile methodologies and minimally viable products, all of those methodologies are trying to get to an approach where we have a big vision, but we make investments and progress and we test and learn in a very incremental manner. And so that that agile mindset is is critical in how we innovate and how we build and release capabilities. Um, you might not be able to name the client, but what what types of businesses were some of your clients in who used that methodology where, you know, you're writing the future press release and the user manual? Yeah, so I, I work across uh, lots of different domains. I have a, a big telecommunications client where we are going through that that very deliberate process of understanding the portfolio of investments that we might be willing to make and then being very deliberate upon how we stage gate those through the process so that we're, we're trying to create speed and decision making and we're trying to create a very hypothesis driven approach to how we innovate. I do a lot of work in healthcare, both um, a, a, a mid-size and small company. And it really is about how to break down the traditions, the assumptions of how things happen within healthcare to create both a better customer experience plus one that cuts cost out. Uh, there's so much waste, especially in the U.S. healthcare systems. It, it, it's, it's an unbelievable uh, tapeworm on our economy and on, on employers. Nobody is happy with healthcare in the U.S., not employers, not practitioners, not the doctors, not the patients, not families. And, and, it's, and it's because there's so many, there's, it, the experience is so fractionalized across all of the different components and so being able to integrate that and rethink assumptions policies jobs approaches that's where i tend to work with my healthcare clients and you take them five to ten years out because then they're not tethered by today's reality that's right and and once we have that five to ten year out detailed understanding of what we think it should be, then we bring it back like, well, what, what, what's the riskiest part of that? What's the most important part? How do we test for that? And then how do we test for the next thing? And then how do we test for the next thing? And how do we build this in a modular way so that we can proceed in testing and rolling out on a quicker basis than big monolithic projects and investments? Yeah. Okay. 
And what about, uh, you got any stuff in there about leadership, team development, people? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, Amazon has 14 uh, leadership principles. The, the first is pretty famous. It's about customer obsession. Leaders start with the customer and work backwards. They work vigorously to earn and keep customer trust. And while leaders pay attention to competitors, they obsess about customers. The 14th is called uh, deliver results. And, you know, leaders are expected to deliver hard results despite setbacks and despite dependencies. And there's a number of others between those around, you know, diving deep and being curious and being a constant learner and having rigorous data rich conversations, right? And so a a lot of these ideas are directly tied to and supported and, and tied to a principle. But the thing I find about leadership principles is people will get the concept, but what they need then are the tools and the actions and the measures for well how do I how do I build this as a habit within my team and how do I know if I'm doing it well and that's where really the 50 and a half ideas take off from these 14 leadership principles and like hey here's the mechanisms the things you do in order to build those habits within your organization and as I said back to yourself and and you asked about the half idea so the half idea is really back to this notion of you know these are authentic approaches strategies tools from Amazon that lead them to get the types of results that they get. But the book's not about Amazon, the book is about you. And so the real question is, what are you willing to do individually to make change happen? Like what new habits are you willing to take? Just don't take all 50 ideas, take take two or three, right? And think about how do we make this a team habit that we're gonna do? And guess what organizations tend to mirror what their leaders are spending time on and the yep. new things that they're doing. And that's how real change happen is by getting a leadership team to act differently and then being patient and letting that trickle down over time. And John, do you have a favorite? Or a, or a, or do you do you have a do you have a hammer? Do you have one that's a hammer and you use it more well, often than the, others? The hammer, I would say, is around the metrics, and uh-huh. and people do not measure their businesses adequately, and they don't put those measures to to work to make everyday change happen. So I would say that's the hammer. But my favorite is um, idea nine make the elephant dance portfolio strategy and governance for innovation and it comes back to this notion of you actually have to have a portfolio view of what your investments projects and programs are right and what most companies are good at is the low risk low potential benefit quadrant, right? Those are basically projects that we do every day that if we execute well, we know what type of benefit we're gonna get. But what you don't have are what we call that Amazon are called bets. Those are in endeavors where you don't, it sounds like a good idea, but you actually don't know if it's gonna work or not. Those are the things where you need to think big, but bet small. You need to make those types of bets super small. But it starts with this understanding of there is a portfolio and based upon where this program is, is 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 it a routine type of project? I should go about it in one way. But if it's a bet, I don't know the outcome. You need to apply a different type of 
governance, how you approach the project. Because if you approach that project with the same type of oversight and approach and program management skills and, and approval processes that you use on your traditional projects, you'll kill those ideas, right? Those methodologies don't work on small bets. Well, the thing is, somebody will have an opinion that this isn't worth the time and trouble, or somebody will be able to tell you why it won't work, and it'll get killed. You've the got, trick, you know, and the trick on those bets isn't to say why it won't work, but it's really saying, well, if we could get it to work, is it is it a big market, right? Is it a worthy market to go after? Could we envision ourselves being the type of operator that would succeed in this business? And how do we take the first steps? Like, what's the most what's what's the most important thing that we should test first in order to prove that idea? Because because anybody can come up with with reasons why something new won't work. And that's the type of, of exact situation where those are the types of questions you should be asking on your traditional types of projects. But if you lead with that type of perspective on these bets, guess what? None of them will ever get out of gate one. Yeah. Look, it's Jim Collins calls it firing bullets and then cannonballs. It's, oh, interesting. You know, it's, that, yeah. it's that sort of, uh, you know, bet small and often and then incrementally increase your firepower behind it. I love that. I yeah. love that. That's that's great. That's perfect. Um, John, you, you know you've you've uh, you've had a varied career, and you know loads of things. Some of them you've put on paper. But if you had to go back in time, knowing something that you know now, what what would you take with you, and where would you go? I just had I have a, uh, both my boys are in college now, and and uh, I was hiking with one of them a week ago, and we had this talk about what's called the butterfly effect. And we were talking about time travel, right? And the butterfly effect is this is this common situation in science fiction books where uh, uh, somebody goes back in time and they just happen to step on one butterfly and then they go back to real time. And because of that, that one butterfly was stepped on, the entire world has changed, right? So that that's called the butterfly effect in, in science fiction. And the, and the problem I have with that question is I'm so blessed with, you know, in particular, the family and relationships that I have uh, and my health and everything that I hesitate to go, well, I would go back and change this because you actually don't know what the implications would be to everything else in your life, you know, and everything, right? But uh, I think to answer to answer your question, um, I think if I were to go back in time, while I studied engineering, so I, I went to school in the 80s, right, and, um, and I studied engineering, if I could go back in time, I would have studied computer science, which actually would have been a little harder for me to do to actually find the degree um, where I could go to school and all those sorts of things. But I, I, I wish I had dug deeper early in my career in 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 architecture, like how to construct scalable systems, I think is an incredibly important skill. But but again, I, I would hesitate to go back and change anything because because I'm so fortunate in uh, in the life that I get to lead now. And what sort of engineering was it that you did? I studied industrial engineering. So industrial engineering is is really the discipline of understanding efficiency, right? Reducing errors, um, making things more cost efficient, understanding the interplay between machine and humans and everything, right? And so that was that was very rich and definitely shaped the way that I I think about operations from kind of a total quality management perspective. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's that's fantastic that you have a life a life lived with no regrets. That's good. Um, I guess we've got you've got your own book, the um, Think Like Amazon. But other than other than your books, 
or your book, sorry, what have you read along the way that's had an impact on you that you think everybody else should pick up? Well, um, one book, and it's more of a, a writer, but Peter Drucker uh-huh. um, and the effective manager and the effective executive, I think, are are foundational uh, books. And and you know, I I would never even dream of writing something that is impactful as those. But you know, really, the simple essence of his writing is being an effective leader is about managing yourself effectively first and foremost right and everybody turns it upside down they think that being an effective leader is about managing others and it's not it's about managing yourself right how do you how do you develop your own thinking patterns where do you spend your time how do you approach your work how do you make decisions those are the things that are always within our control and those are the things that really make us effective leaders because those things get get passed on to others and so take control of the things you can, can take control of which is in essence you know your your own skills and your own approach to how you approach your work yeah look it's it's funny what what comes to mind when you say that is is you talking earlier about the leadership team and the habits and changing the organization and then I was struck thinking about Bill Gates and his think week where he goes away and just reads some books and there was a habit and you know I talk to clients sometimes and I say you know have you you know what have you read that might have helped you fix this problem and sometimes people say well I don't really read and so um I assume the people who listen to the podcast are curious and do read and have that sense of um, self-development. Well, I think that that is um, being curious and always being a lifelong learner is, you know, the, the, the such an important habit and something that I, Jeff Bezos and the Amazon leadership team does in spades. In fact, one of the ideas in Think Like Amazon, Idea 48, is called You Are What You Eat create change via the executive team reading list. And uh-huh. one of the things the Amazon leadership team does is they pick a book, they read it as individuals, but then they come together and talk about it as a leadership team. And, you know, what should we take away from this book? What implications does this have for our business, you know, and everything, right? And so they they demonstrate that being lifelong learners. And I think that it gets back to this notion of, you have to be deliberate about how you work in the future. And that's about both developing your own skills as an understanding of important big trends that are going on, and then being deliberate in how you define the future and what paths you're going to pick and going in. John, that's brilliant. What And what do you, what's the future look like for you? Well, I'm going to uh, continue doing what I'm doing, which is kind of, you know, my business is kind of half keynote speaking and half advisory work. And I think I've probably got a couple more books in me and everything and um, continuing to, to just help others define uh, their future and, and um, hopefully see them innovate along the way. John, that's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed for giving me your time today. It's been, Don, been an great absolute to pleasure. With you. Thank you. Brilliant. Cheers. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, 
the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.